why make art and make stories? I mean, I, I, I just still, it models for us possibility. Like it, it, it does and it is necessary and I think it's vital and we need the super smart scientists clearly now making vaccines and helping people and we need a million more mutual aid societies and we need doctors like that stuff we probably still need more but around all that we have to have the sense of like heartbeat and humanness that I totally a thousand percent believe art offers and models for us. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. This is the Let's Give a Damn podcast, and I'm your host and friend, Nick LaPara. On this show, I have conversations with all kinds of amazing humans that have two things in common. They all give a damn, and they're all striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. I'm incredibly glad each and every one of you are here. Before I introduce my guest to you, If you have 60 seconds to spare, and I know you all do, would you be willing to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps, and I promise it will only take a few seconds. And as you're listening to today's conversation, think about who should hear it and send it to them right away. I listen to a ton of podcasts, and almost every time I post about it on social media or I share it with a friend, and sometimes I do both. This is super helpful for those of us out here hustling and creating content. If you decided to do one or both of those things just now, thank you very much. I love you. And if you didn't, I still love you just a little bit less than the other group of people. Friends, my guest this week is Obi-winning writer and director for theater and film, Tina Satter. The New York Times described Tina as a visually exacting stage artist with a taste for acidic eye candy and erotic enigmas. I don't know about you, but I hope something as cool as that will be said about me at some point in my life. Jeez, that's amazing. Tina is the founder and artistic director of Half Straddle, an award-winning theater company based in New York City. Over the past 12 or 13 years, Half Straddle has premiered 10 full-length shows, and a few shorter works and projects that have been seen at festivals and theaters throughout the world, U.S., Europe, Australia, Asia. Tina came across Reality Winner's Story in 2017 and subsequently conceived and directed a show called Is This a Room that was first presented off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theater and is currently on Broadway at the Lyceum Theater. I wanted to have Tina on the show to talk about her life and work, but also to talk about this show because, as you know, if you follow me on social media or listen to this show, you know that I think about and talk about Reality Winner on a constant basis. And last year, I had Reality's mother, Billy, on the show to talk about Reality's imprisonment and all that's happening in Reality's life. And it's even more important to have Tina on the show to talk about her life and work and this brilliant show right now because it wraps up on November 27. And of course, there is a slight chance it will get extended, but we have to assume that it won't. So you only have a few days left to book tickets and plan that last minute trip to New York City during the greatest time of the year, November and December, and also to see this show. Once you listen to my conversation with Tina, I know you're going to want to see it all the more. Jesse Green at the New York Times said that Is This a Room is 
one of the thrillingest thrillers ever to hit Broadway. Is This a Room is astonishing and astonishingly emotional theater. Ben Brantley, also from the New York Times, described it as a taut, extraordinary thriller. Every word will stretch your nerves to snapping. Peter Marks from the Washington Post described it as a scintillating, gut-grabbing, 70-minute production. Is This a Room casts an irresistible spell. And as someone who recently saw that show, I agree with all three of these reviews. I was breathless for the entire 60 to 70 minutes and was finally able to breathe at the very end once we were all giving the amazing cast their well-deserved standing ovation. I loved spending this hour with Tina, and I think you're going to love Tina as well. A truly great conversation. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate me or the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And now let's get right into my conversation with conceiver and director of This Is A Room, Tina Satter. Let's go. It's an absolute pleasure to have Tina Satter on the Let's Give a Damn podcast today. Welcome, Tina. Hi, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. I know this is these are incredibly busy weeks for you and everything that you're doing with <laughs> Is This a Room? Uh, so really, thank you for taking the time. Um, before we get this, this podcast, Let's Give a Damn, is not just about highlighting the good happening in the world and, you know, pointing people toward those things. It's primarily, honestly, about, you know, highlighting the people behind those good things because good things don't exist unless we, you know, put them into action, unless we create something, unless we make something. So before we, I do want to talk about Is This Room? I do want to talk about Reality Winner. You've created something really amazing that I hope some people that are listening today, you know, make new plans in the next week or two to see it in the last couple of weeks here on Broadway. But before we get to that, I want to get to know you a little bit because as I get to hear people's stories, a lot of times we learn why you ended up creating something like this, right? There's always these like hints in people's, you know, past and in the people, places and things that formed them that give us, you know, an insight into who you are today and why you're making the kind of stuff you are today. So before we get into this, is this room, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you were born here in the Northeast. Um, I think you and I are across town. You're in Brooklyn, I think, and I'm in Manhattan. And so we're waving across, uh, <laughs> you know, the East River. But um, yeah, tell us a, a little bit about who you are, the people, places, and things that shaped you, that formed you. We'll talk a little bit about your career because you've already done some pretty incredible things. Um, and then we'll go from there. But I, I do want to hear about who you are and uh, how you got here uh, first. Sure. I mean, I can give sort of some basics. And then if you have any more questions or something, of course. I, could, I could go down any rabbit hole of <laughs> how we are where we are. Right. Um, yes, I I'm actually in Philly right now, but we can get to that because I'm I'm living here for the next through next June. But I'm in Brooklyn and, and New York all the time now. Perfect. Um, but I was I, I am from the Northeast. I was born and raised in a very small town in New Hampshire. Um, and then went to like a small liberal arts college in Maine, which is the Bowdoin, which is the sort of requisite path I came out of at that point in my life. And then um, then spent eight years living in Portland, Oregon, which was really, I always say, saved my life because it sort of just opened up 
um, the world to me in a bigger way um, at that point to be literally on another coast and just meeting different kinds of people outside the sort of new, very New England um, like bubble sure. I've grown up in, which is very preppy and sportsy. And I loved all that. But um, that's where I sort of started to turn my head towards the arts. Um, and yeah, I could, could totally delve into all of these, but had, a, had sort of a tip. I, so I had not had any theater training or anything as an undergraduate. I am a, I'm a late bloomer in many ways in my life and definitely in turning to being a theater um, director and playwright. Um, but in that time in Portland, I always had normal office jobs like copywriter, PR person, and then briefly was like, maybe I wanted to do acting. So there's a whole, like that was a sort of semi-random thing, but um, was not a good actor, but that really introduced me into theater making and I, and I can come back to this, uh, but sure. yeah, cause they're, yeah, I, I think I'm a little long winded or just, there's like lots of details and I love people's details. So I will like all the details, but yeah, living in Portland, um, a turn from acting to like working with a company that made me think, Oh, about playwriting and directing for the first time. And again, without any like conservatory training or like pedagogy in this, they the people I was working for were really influenced by contemporary avant-garde New York artists like the Worcester Group and Richard Foreman. So I like come into theater making totally sideways, inspired by like the experimentalists and um, sort of started thinking that, oh, this is something I could, I just was really interested in it as a way of processing the world, of making something live on stage and then do end up in New York, still not totally there to do theater at all, but decide I wanna to move to the city. And then after a year in New York, um, I had one friend who was in the experimental theater world. He was an intern at Richard Foreman's Ontological Hysteric, which was a very seminal experimental place at the time. He was telling me what shows to see yeah, this is all a much more detailed story, but I decided I started to realize that the Brooklyn College playwriting program was this really interesting hotbed of people making contemporary experimental work applied there. And it was getting into that MFA program and starting that that almost like literally made my community. And like there's that's the direct line between me making work at a serious level like I am doing now and being on Broadway was starting that MFA program at Brooklyn College under Mac Wellman, meeting some of my still core collaborators. And then I was just like in it, making work, uh, theater work in New York City, still often working other jobs for a period of that time that were not theater related. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of the bigger picture. I know that's still sort of general and there's lots more detail I could fill in there. But no, I, yeah. I it's, it sounds like you and I both love stories and lo <laughs> love talking. And so maybe another time we'll do the three, four hour. Because I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I adore, like I, there's nothing more exciting for me than to sit down with somebody over a drink or a good cigar and just like hear them out, like all the details, because all those details matter, right? And we don't have time today. We've right. got, we do we do have a stop, you know, so we're not going to do that today. But I, I totally understand that we could stop, you know, a million times along that path. Um, Portland, Oregon, very interesting. Okay. I love that city. We used to live a couple hours north, uh, just south of Seattle in Tacoma, okay. Washington. Yeah. And t Portland is still one of my favorite cities. Um, and you know, getting, so before moving to Portland, had you done much traveling? Cause it sounds like that was the thing that opened you up to just, you know, there's other people and there's another coast and there's more ideas out there. I don't know what your, you know, yeah. your, your small town upbringing, but Portland is, 
in a lot of ways, you know, much more progressive than the rest of the country. Um, and so, yeah, had you done much traveling before then, or was that really the big one where you went out and you're like, holy shit, like th there's a whole new world out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so I had, you know, I grew up in a small town in New England, but had like, you know, it was a very, I had a very middle-class upbringing. So like, you know, we went to Boston, my family had taken before, especially before my parents got divorced, like, you know, trips to Mexico and Europe here and there. I'd done the requisite study abroad in Ireland, like my semester abroad when I didn't have to miss like the field hockey in the fall. So I, I, it wasn't like this totally, you know, it was a, like just in my small town dreaming of the big city. I did, you know, I, I very much had um, the great gift of having like my world was a little bigger than that, but, but in a certain way, like, like who I could be at that point at age 21, 22, and like what that meant, like in the U S I had not conceived of actually, you know what I mean? Like I thought I would, I'd been an English major and I was super into playing field hockey. So I was like, I guess I'll try to coach field hockey at a prep school and I'll teach English. But by the time I got like near the end of my senior year at Bowdoin College, I was like, I don't know. I don't quite want to do that. You know, even though that weirdly my whole path in life had been building to that. And that's where I say I'm a late bloomer. I wasn't like some 12 year old punk who'd been like, screw the system. I was like, kind of went along with it. Although I clearly had something weirder inside me that has come out more as an adult making theater. But I, that so so Portland and I, you know at that point I always have to say this I well I had seen like seven Dave Matthews shows just to give yeah. I was like which were super fun I'd also seen the Allman Brothers who I like were really cool so it was a, this was a, you know this is like 90s New England very the, the norm core version of it and I was you know having a great time in it but I had a friend who I'd grown up with in New Hampshire who had moved to Portland Oregon she was a year older than me. And I, so I, after Bowdoin, I was living a year in Boston, which was sort of what you did. You, you, most of us went to Boston, maybe New York, maybe San Francisco. Um, but she was in Portland, Oregon, which I just had never really even thought of beyond the Oregon trail computer game. But I was at a, like, I was having this very, I think classic sort of, you know, middle-class 21 year old, like I screwed up my life. I don't know what I want to do, you know, and was actually very depressed. And, you know, obviously I was, fine in life, but really thought I'm, I, you know, I'm smart and I have potential and, but what am I doing? You know, that feeling like all these kind of indulgent feelings that I'd ruined my life because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But, and she, this friend, Christina, um, with a CH, she was living in Portland, Oregon. And I, you know, I had been an English major and was doing some arts writing and she was like, come here and you can get an internship. And I got on a plane to Portland, Oregon and just immediately, it was just so different. So come back to your interest, your original question. It was so different than New England. It was West Coast. I mean, these really kind of embarrassing things to say that were like awakenings for me at the time. I met super smart people who hadn't gone to college. You know, I yeah, saw yeah, people right, with right. tattoos. So this just all speaks to my very white middle class background. But like these, these were really helpful things to me. They just cracked open the world in a bigger way for me and saw Slater Kinney for the first time. Right. So it's like, let's move from the like Dave Matthews mind, but like saw really cool music, dead mood, like, and they, these things were genuinely interesting to me and just, I hadn't been exposed to them or sought them out. Like I'd stayed in the track that it was sort of right in front of me in, in preppy new England. And so, yeah, that's what new England really opened up to me. And there was this really exciting arts 
scene right there. And I wasn't really, really in it then, but just the sense of DIY possibility, I think did get into my veins a bit then. And yeah, that's what Portland really provided to me. And I think, you know, I think of my friends who moved to New York city at 18 and maybe you did that, but that blows my mind. Like I would, that me coming 10 years after that was much better, but Portland was a way bigger city than the little white church town I came from. So it, it really just, and what was amazing and accessible to move around. And yeah, it was just very seminal for me to open up my world by being in a city and a city on the West coast at that point in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I encourage everybody to, uh, I, I understand, I know some people, there's not that many people these days, but I know some people that like grew up somewhere and stayed generally there, maybe ventured off for a little bit, but went back home, but more and more people are not doing that. Uh, you asked if I, you know, maybe you moved to New York. No, I, I was born in upstate New York and then my, we moved to Guatemala, lived there 10 years. Okay. Then I spent 10 years traveling the world, living out of two suitcases. We've lived all over the U S as a family with my wife and kids now. And we just moved to New York five months ago and are hoping to Ooh. never leave. It's always been the dream. Like the dream was always New York, even growing up for the first few years of life in upstate New York. Just New York City was it. And then I've been to all the best cities in the world and I love so many of them. And maybe I'll live in some of them at some point, but I've never been able to stop thinking about New York City. And so we finally made it happen. So no, I didn't move here at 18. I'm really okay. glad that even though New York is so worldly and global and the whole world has come to her, it's still, it's, there's nothing like going out and venturing out and exploring the world. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad that I got to do that. I, I want to talk for a minute about this idea of late bloomer, because I think that's so important. And again, it's not so much a thing these days, but I run into it all the time. The majority of people listening to this podcast are in the 18 to 35 range, and it's more women than men. And there's so much, you know, there is still so much pressure to figure your shit out. Like, you know, while you're in college, right after college, pick your thing, stay in your lane, you know, build up, you know, stay in this thing long enough that you can make something of it. And I am, that wasn't my path. My first career was in the nonprofit world, 15 years. I've been self-employed now uh, as a consultant and in, in a content creator for five years now. And I've, I love that I late bloomed and that I am late blooming in my late thirties. I'm now figuring out what I think I wanna do for the rest of my life. Maybe not, maybe in 10 years will be something totally different. And I'm even okay with in my late forties saying, nope, that wasn't it, fuck it, like I'm doing this other thing. But talk about your journey of, you know, and I know you addressed some of it already, but maybe even just your thoughts about, do you think you're better off as a late bloomer exploring some other stuff, thinking that you were going down a totally different path. And now, I don't know how old you are, you don't need to tell us that, but like now, <laughs> wherever you are, you know, deciding to really invest uh, maybe not the rest of your life, but a, a significant portion of your time creating in the the art space, specifically in the theater space. Yeah, I mean, for me, for sure. I mean, I really, I think I sort of alluded it to before. I mean, my, you know, my friends who came to New York City 18, they came because they were extremely talented, in most cases, extremely talented people who went to NYU or other conservative schools and are now like, you know, actors and playwrights right. and doing amazing work. So, but, but there's, I'm always like, that they've they've been doing the slog twice as long as I did it then you, like and so how I am built and stuff I'm always like oh wow I'm I feel really glad it, it's it's just such a hustle even when you have a kind of success this I mean any career but the arts career is pretty in, in, intense and so cyclical and you've really got to 
kind of keep yourself with it, even in when it feels like it's not giving you anything. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm just glad I get 10 years later. And I, cause I think you have a little perspective with age. I had a whole skill set that, that I could um, support myself in office jobs, which was like, you know, and many people do the waiting, waiting tables or bartending. And I, my version of that when I was early artist stuff was office jobs, but that also really helped me focus my time. It did always make me feel to a certain point, like, oh, I could always go back and do that if I needed to and be somewhat secure financially. But the other thing that the, the late blooming aspect gave me is something directly related to my art practice. And it's tied to also not having super serious training from like 18. Like, you know, I do have an MFA and well, I attended a program for MFA in playwriting from Mac Wellman, who's like, you know, one of the master playwrights. So I, I think I have some great training and I've really gotten to absorb with all these people around me. So, but I kind of, what it offered me to not to start later was like this, what I've described as sort of a weird night, naivete merged with that. By that point, somehow, for some reason, I had this really strong instinct of how and what I wanted to make once I started making stuff in New York City. But I also really had no sense of what the right way to make things was. And so that's actually a really kind of special, I've come to realize that's a special place to operate from, um, is that you just can, like, I'm always like, well, I want to make it how I want to make it, you know, is and and yeah, that just is, I think a lot of my work has come from that place and sort of had, when it's appealed to people, that edge of like, wait, what is this? Or what's, you know, and I, there's a lot more to say about that. I do think it is important to actually know what you're deconstructing. And a really important part for me of like, well, I don't know what I'm doing is also really admitting openly. I don't sometimes know what I'm doing and like asking collaborators or asking other people, like, like not just trying to bulldoze something in, but like, knowing where your holes in something are. And again, I was like really lucky to be working with these very special collaborators almost instantly that did have more experience or uh, training and like just sort of, I still would sort of be the leader. So there was still me as like the decider and, and like the director literally, but like kind of building this collective that was willing to work with me and then go with me where I was like, well, this is just how I want it to look. Cause I don't, care or know how theater normally looks. So yeah, again, a lot I could say about that, but that that's where the late blooming, sort of the biggest aspects of it work for me. I, I'm just now in recent like days and weeks being introduced to your work, but from what I can tell from doing a little research and from seeing the kinds of stuff you created, it, it's very evident that you, now that you've told your story, a little bit of it, and you're talking about this late blooming and coming into it later and not really having all the, 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 preconceived things that are thrust upon people when they make it early or get to it early. And you were able to make your own path and do it your own way because you were, you came into it with a certain level of maturity so that you could kind of Absolutely. not take shit from other people and do it your own way. Right. I think, yes. I think, I, I think there are so many really great things about social media and about our current, like social, uh, economy where people can make it really early and they do right yeah obviously there were like there were child they were child actors for forever and there were people that made it early for forever as long as there's been entertainment and arts but now it's happening more often because people can get on tiktok you know uh sing and dance and do their thing and then all of a sudden they have millions of followers and they're now famous right that's never mm -hmm. happened before the last like five or six years and i don't wish that on as i look at 
you know, your work and I think what I'm creating and what a lot of people are creating now in their 30s and in their 40s, um, I don't wish the early success on almost anyone and maybe anyone because you don't have almost any level of maturity to deal with what you're doing. And so in almost every case, look at any person that's made it early on um, and that's figured out really what they want to do and they've had some, some level of visibility to it. There's almost always really bad things that come along with that you're, because you don't know how to handle yourself. You don't know how to live well. You don't know how to act well. And so you have, you know, you know, we have video footage of Justin Bieber like pissing in a bucket, in the, you know, <laughs> like we have like I don't think they're that of you. You can't certainly can't find that of me. Like you, you have these things that that happen as a result of getting this level of visibility when you shouldn't and when you don't have the wherewithal to handle it. And I think there's something really uh, interesting and desirable about making it, quote unquote, making it later on. When you have now the, you have you have a certain level of like gravitas about life. Like you know the weight of life and the what you're dealing with and what you shouldn't do and what you should do. And so I all that to say, I affirm, you know, so many things that you talked about because I think we're on the same wavelength there. And I just love that I have such a patience about what I'm building, right? Because I like I'm I'm mature enough and old enough to know that like if my thing doesn't take off tomorrow or next week or next year, that's fine. I've got time. Sure, I could get hit by a bus today and die, but like as far as I know, I've got nothing but time and I'm going to just slowly create what I think is my life's work and the slower I make it, the better I make it you know, versus like everybody's pressuring me to make stuff. Fat. Like I was just thinking about uh, uh, um, Adele's, this new album came out, right? right, she, didn't put, right. She, she didn't put something out for six years. Like, I think that's right. like, there's some, there's a level of maturity there where, and I know there's a lot going on in those six years. I'm not saying it was just, Hey, I'm going to be patient, right. but there is something there about like, no, I don't have to put something out every month or every week or every whatever. Like I'm going to make good shit and I'm going to make it slowly. And it's going to cook for the appropriate amount of time so that when it comes out, it's like a really good meal for everybody. Um, all that to say, I affirm the <laughs> late blooming. I'm, I'm there and I, I love that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Everything. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think I do have a bit of once I started making theater, I think. And, and you know, showing it in New York City, I do think I there is a bit of a. You kind of have to keep doing it though. Like, sure. I'm, I've not quite been in a Dell position once to sit for six years. Like, because once I was able to switch into making art seriously, it then meant I could make some money from teaching and or you be in these grant cycles. So just to say then weirdly, you're then like, you sort of have to keep having this output in this like, in the arts economy of like the contemporary experimental artist thing. Like, like you don't quite yeah. have the ability to sit back if you want to stay doing that. Because at that point I didn't want to necessarily return to office jobs because my work literally even required that I wasn't then beholden to that in the same way I'd been able to be early in my career. So I have felt a little bit of like, all right, gotta go though. It started a little late, but now I got to bust it out. So yeah. I, I think you're right. And as I was, as I was sharing the you know, I've been, you know, the Adele show was just last night, the one that showed on yeah, CBS yeah. in her interview with Oprah. And it was amazing. She's yeah. incredible. But totally. I think that was on my mind, but probably you're right. It's the wrong example because obviously like somebody like Adele, God bless her, like she's, <laughs> she's sitting on tens of millions of dollars right. and she has right. the ability to just 
do nothing really for the rest of her life if she wanted to. Um, and so, yes, bad example. I mean, I, I, no, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the same way you are. I have to, I put these podcasts out every single week, right? I got to keep creating content. We're over 200 episodes now. Like, and I'm having all these conversations and we're trying to make a TV show and I'm writing a book and doing all these things. So I guess the overarching theme of what you shared, what I understood about what you shared yeah. and what I was trying to share is it's okay to not have it figured out. It's okay yes. to bloom late and it's okay to stumble our way through it, right? I'm sure as you've created all these amazing works of art and, you know, the latest one or the, the least the latest one I know about is this a room, you know, we can just keep, yeah, we do have to keep putting it out there. Maybe there's less shame and less pressure on ourselves to get it right because we know we've been creating for some time. We can keep, okay, this one might fail. This one might bomb, right. but we can keep making shit. We can keep making good yes. shit. And that's what we're going to keep doing. There's, there's, there's that, again, that maturity about life where it's like, no, I'm going to keep going. Like, I'm not going to give up because one thing failed, you know? So right. maybe that's that's what I was trying to, you know, communicate. And again, God bless Adele for all of her, uh, <laughs> no, you know, yeah, her, her amazing that, talent. That maturity and perspective of like, it doesn't maybe feel good at the time when something fails, but you, it, you do have that the older you get. I mean, there's something, you know, I've, in a, like, sort of who just sticks around and keeps doing it yeah. in a way is who's successful in the end. Like that, you know, that that's sort of an adage and or like an anecdotes of like, you know, like there's almost something more to like that you just keep doing it than that. And that it, that if, if it works for you, that that's the version of who's, who's the person still making theater 25 years later, that's actually a version of success and there's and you look would look back at what that person or company made and some's incredible some wasn't as good but like they kept doing it and that's actually that's who's still there <laughs> yeah doing it is yeah so thing. much yeah. so much truth in that uh, before we uh make a little pivot here toward is this a room one more question about sort sure. of your your theater career like sure. who i i'm also a big I'm a big theater head. Okay. Um, I love musicals. I love plays. When I listen, when I look at, if you were to open my Apple Music and look at what Nick listens to, it's all <laughs> it's all classical music. It's all Broadway. Like that's it. Like that is it. I don't. Yes, I'll listen to an Adele song. I'll listen to a new song that comes out from so and so. I've got you know a few people that I check in with, but it's all. <laughs> I, I just want to listen to classical music and operas and Broadway musicals and. Um, so who, so I know, who are your sort of influences? What are the things that you, in the theater space, like what are some of your favorite shows, just your favorite plays? Like what inspires you to keep creating in the theater? Or I guess it could be something outside the theater world as well, but like what inspires you to keep making stuff in a world that is high pressure and that you do, once you sort of have any level of making it, you do have to keep making stuff. What inspires you and ignites you and keeps you going? Yeah, well, so I wasn't a theater kid or a musical theater kid or even a Broadway person <laughs> until now I'm on Broadway and, you know, but, but of course was in the world and then was making theater in New York, but it, there, it was pretty, um, it was not one of my influences. So the first big theater, I mean, and, and I'm historically for myself, historically been much more influenced by like visual art and some sort of, and some sort of rock musicians, but and like fashion magazines, but yeah, I so I but I there was some seminal theater things when I first started, and there and that and then it's grown and it even has come to encompass more traditional things. But like the really early theater people that made the 
Richard Foreman. I don't know if you're, you know, Richard Foreman's or his book, Unbalancing Acts. I like say this all the time, literally recommend to everyone making anything in any form ever. It's called Unbalancing Acts. You know, he's still alive, but was really sort of big in 70s, 80s, 90s, um, New York City and had the theater ontological start. Just his way of thinking what is theater and what it could be was the first thing where I read it where I was like, oh, that like I sort of said before, this is a way of processing the world and my questions and thoughts on it is how this person is thinking and making something. So Richard Foreman, and then um, the the really early other influences were I was the Worcester group who just the aesthetics of that and how and that level of performance, but within something that just felt like you'd never seen it before, which is very exciting to me and what's what I think I want art to do to feel like something I've never quite seen or felt before. And then the really other big influence on me is someone named Richard Maxwell, who makes work with his company, the New York City Players. It's just formally very, very specific. And like, it just has this really great style and again, really great actors, but kind of cutting against like kind of off, like the more Broadway idioms inherently. So there's so much more I could say about all these people, but though, and then Mac Wellman, who's an amazing playwright, mm. amazing, who was then my teacher at Brooklyn College. And there, uh, Mac Wellman, I mean, again, people say this a lot, but I don't know if they said it on your show. Like, you could trace almost everybody working today Annie Baker, Brandon Jacob Jenkins, Thomas Bradshaw, Young Jean Lee, um, me, um, all went through Mac Wellman's hand and Washburn. I'm like listing off a bunch of playwrights that are really amazing. Um, so he's really, so those are my like theater biggies that like, I, and then I think Ivo von Hova is, you know, um, European, but again, does a really specific style and has been on Broadway. They're all usually, they're cutting, like all of them are not Broadway types, but like make very rigorous, very exciting work. And the, so those are my like theater biggies that I am thinking of a lot. And then I'm, you know, there's a dance maker named Sarah Mitchelson who made a lot of work with Parker Lutz, who's now my set designer, how their work looked and felt was very important to me. And then it goes into visual art and like cool bands. Like I just saw my friends The Blow play the other night at um, uh, Pioneer Works. And it's like these two women on stage and they're it's just like this kind of punky, cool girl group thing. I, and that like that kind of energy and liveness is is very um, influential on me, actually. So yeah, <laughs> they, I love yeah. it. No, so much there. And and again, maybe we'll do it another time. Just kind of flesh those out. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah there's true. there's so much beautiful. And and I I know some people. I have friends that that rarely, if ever, go out. And, and I know it's been a hell of a last year and a half with right. the pandemic and all. But even before that, they're like they they just don't need to be in the room experiencing uh, uh, art being made. Right? Whether it's looking at a painting or listening to a band or watching a play or experiencing a Broadway show, like. They don't need to do that. And that is mind blowing to me because I cannot live without experiencing art. Like it feeds me, it nourishes me, it helps me be the damn giver that I am, you know, helping in the social impact space. Like I need that to feed me. Um, so I, I'll, I will check out, I will go back and listen to that list of things that yeah. you named. Yeah. I know Foreman, but I, I haven't read that book. I will get that book immediately because it sounds incredible. I don't I know why I haven't read it. are amazing. I mean, just his work was sort of, if you, is like kind of inscrutable, but really incredible. And, but the essays are like these clarify. I really think you will respond to it actually the little bit. We've already talked like these clarify 
design ethos on on why and what to make, but uh, so light, not heavy. They're just, they kind of click into your soul and you're like, oh, I, I can do this or I want to do this. And it feels, it's just coming from a not psychological and socially mandated space. And I think that's what was really freeing to me. Cause I always want to make things again, like I said, that you've never quite seen before or that are not parroting back to us. What we've been told is the way you see or react to things, which a lot of theater and, and other stuff does actually. So yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, let me stop real quickly and say this. You have a show on Broadway right now. Like congrats. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, especially in the after, again, we're still in the pandemic. I get it. Yeah. I'm not undermining that. I spent most of the pandemic working in the pandemic space. So I've, it's very, it's, it's still happening and we've got things to work through, but in the sort of quote unquote aftermath of the pandemic, there, tons of shows didn't come back. Um, there's so much like upheaval in that space because these are, these are productions that it's not a one and done. You don't pay, you know, it's not like you're making a film, you make the movie, it's done. Maybe we'll make our money back. Who knows? But like, these are, it's just day in and day out, sometimes two a days. And it's like, you have to keep making this and there's so many ongoing costs and realities in that space. So I know in the busyness of stuff, it probably, you know, things get really heavy, but I just want to like stop and say congrats. Like that's a huge feat. I walk around my office right now where I'm sitting right now is in Midtown. I love hate being in Midtown for my office. <laughs> and I love hate the theater district because there's so many like tourists doing touristy things. But sometimes I'll just walk around. It's like, I love looking at the theaters. I, I love being in the theaters. Totally. And you're like a few blocks from me right now, you know, in the Lyceum Theater. So that's just like really huge. And I hope that you feel proud of yourself for that. And, and especially the content of the show that you have on Broadway. It's, it's truly amazing. Thank you so much. I mean, I, it, I do, I feel very proud and I feel so lucky to have the collaborators that I made that show with over the last few years and for all of us to be there. And we worked super hard at every stage of it and, um, and have had in such so many ways, such a great response to it there. It, it is, it's, uh, you know, and we're still in it, but I, I do feel proud. I mean, there's, there's hard, weird times with the whole thing, but it, it is incredible. And it, again, it's funny because we didn't, me and most of my collaborators were not artists aiming towards Broadway. There were different things that felt like were our goals. And some of those we'd already met and we're hoping to keep re-meeting, but it is, it's undeniably totally exciting and cool and crazy to be there. And, and we don't actually, and we don't take it for granted and we feel really lucky and, and proud. Like as yeah. you said, it's incredible. So reality winner, Last yeah. year, I had uh, Reality's mom, Billy, on the podcast. And oh, amazing. Yeah, she's she's incredible. You know, we've kept in touch, and I've tried to – I mean, I can't imagine what Billy – you know, Reality's out of prison, but not out of prison. She still, you know, can't go free, and so it's, it's one of the ongoing, you know, horrible things that's happening to her. But, you know, Billy, it was so good to connect with Billy, and, and Reality is on – it's one of those stories that – there's obviously a lot of shit going on in the world and there's a ton of things that we could think about and we can't think about it all or just like we'll just drown in sorrow of, about everything that's going on. But reality is one of those people and one of those stories that I think about every single day. Every single day I think about reality. Every single day I think about the miscarriage of justice that is still ongoing and happening in reality's mm -hmm. story. Talk to me about the first time that you heard the name reality winner, heard the story felt what you felt, 
and take us on the the journey from that point and you know to the point where you said I'm gonna make a show about this. Like I'm gonna take the transcript and make a show about this because um, I'm anxious to hear. I, I mean, I've read some of the you know interviews yeah. and interactions you've had about it, but um, what what is that story like about you hearing this story? What did you feel when you heard that story? I mean, I think I had what I've come to learn is a very common way of coming to reality. Like, so what happened, it happened on June 3rd, 2017, that she, this is exactly what we show on stage. And then that's what vaults her somewhat into the public consciousness because her story did get news attention because she was arrested for being um, a whistleblower, but it never got a ton. And I frankly didn't super pay attention to it. Like if, if you had asked me in summer of 2017, like who reality winners, I, I might've been like, I think that person got arrested for something like I really had not paid attention to it but her name of course was really captured captured me I don't even know if I would have known it was like in the security space or anything so in December 2017 totally free reading killing time I stumble upon the article on her in New York magazine called America's biggest terrorist has a Pikachu bedspread so they they got me with that headline and I was like wait because I that Pikachu, you know, I'm going to go in towards the Pikachu. And then it was this picture and pictures of reality that were I was reading it online. And I was like, that's reality winner. And I was just so even taken with her, who she was like this blonde girl. And there's a picture of her one with a Pikachu hoodie up in her eyes. And I was just like, what, this is real. I don't know. I was, and then I read this article and the details of her life were like, blowing my mind so it's all in this like you know 20 minute thing I some click the thing read that I'm like wow this woman's still fascinating this is amazing story and then that had somehow had a link and that same time I was reading it to it said like read about the day she was visited by the FBI and that took me to Politico which had a scanned pdf of the transcript like the actual FBI transcript and it, so this is all again in the same first half hour of coming back to who reality was in December 2017. And it really is. And I have said this a ton, but as soon as I was reading, like seeing the transcript, which instead of characters listed participants, like had this stamp on it that looked like a title, like reality winner verbatim transcription. And then as soon as I was like reading this dialogue, I was just like, oh my God, this feels like a play to me. This, and and then the more I was reading in this first reading, clicking through, I was like, it's like a thriller. Cause I know that I know this person's in prison as I'm reading it, but I'm like, when do they, when does she admit? Like, I just, and then I'm like, oh my God, now there's a weird discussion of cats. What is happening in this document? I am, so to be really honest, my very first obsession, like I'd gotten intrigued by who this woman was. And then it was this transcript and like the first, hour of my relationship to reality I was like this is really fascinating and then I worked with Emily Davis who like astoundingly portrays reality on the Broadway stage and all the times we've made it she looks like reality a bit and I worked with her for 10 years I'm like this actress could do this so that was the very I sent it to her then we looked back at these emails a couple months ago like I send to her in you know December 2017 do you know who reality winner is? Read this. We could make a play about her. You could play her. And so, so yeah, then cut to like, we read it to figure out if it's a play. And then within a couple months of actually, or weeks, months of working on it is when, I mean, I, I've taught, it's like sort of for a little bit, I didn't totally think of her as real again when we were first, first working at it. I was so 
trying to crack if can this con can this transcript be a play like and then after like a few weeks of that it was like wait this person is alive she is in prison she has a family like and then the full weight of who she was and the story like returned to me and has stayed with me and all of us and I just so to and also to just answer something about what you asked the two things struck out to me. I'm like, this is like, she's such, she's 25 at this point. This is like a millennial patriot. Like to me, I like, we've such a weird time in our country. And this person somehow seemed to hold so much in her history and actions and personality that felt so like America in that moment. It was really fascinating to me. And I, it, it felt like a big thought, but it also felt really specific to who she was. And then the other thing that struck me about her that was sort of personal and that sort of kind of question to then why you might make something about her was like, I, at that point in time, you know, in the lead up to the 2016 election, and then definitely after it had a very like, oh my God, this country is awful. It's embarrassing. Like, I hate it. I don't care. Like I'm a glib artist. And I was like, this young woman cares about our country. Like, yes, she maybe operated from idealism and youth, but she like thought our country can be better. Like she like, and that really struck this idea of actually caring about our state and what would it mean to care about the United States actually, even if in a certain way I had enough entitlement to move through it, not really worrying about it. And that just really clicked in for me. I, I just was really obsessed and moved by that part of what I saw in her story. So that, again, million more things I could say, but those are like the early things of me coming to this material and, and who Reality Winner was and the idea of making a, a show about her that put her into live space like that. I, I'm glad you brought up the, the principled nature of Reality's character because the, the I have a huge problem with people that, if it's against the law, you don't do it, right? Like that's a that's a bad way to look at life because there are there are so many laws, all kinds of laws that are unjust and that leave no room for doing the right thing, right? And this is one of those cases like the the there's reality is not unique in terms of whistleblowers. Right. That do the right thing. This is something like what reality leaked the document that she leaked, what was in that document, every single one of us, every single American has a right to know what was on that document. And we never would have found out were it not for reality. I shudder. I literally shudder thinking about how much information is being withheld from us that mm -hmm. we need to know. We are entitled to know and we are being shielded from it. Not for our protection to almost always to protect the powers that be, almost always to protect people in power. I mean, right now, reality is not the only whistleblower that is being punished. Steven Donziger, uh, who is in, who exposed Chevron's atrocities against indigenous people in South America. He is, he spent 800 days under house arrest and two weeks ago was put in prison for six months. He was disbarred. He did the right thing. He exposed these things. Money won. Power won. He's in prison. Just this morning, there's this big article out about this. There's this cop that slapped um, slapped after this, this black man was handcuffed. He slapped him, called him a bitch, did all these things to him. Another cop 
told on him, like exposed what, this is not right. We shouldn't be doing this. He was, he lost his job and is now, he was, he was ousted from the police union and is now facing up to 20 years in prison for, I don't think he'll get 20 years. Who knows? I don't know. But the point is I've had people over the last three years knowing reality's story that have, that have, they mean what they're saying. Like they're actually from, from deep down inside, they're saying, but the law, but she broke the law. She did. She broke the law. And I'm like, that is not our, I do not live by whether it's the law or not. I live by, is it right or not? Right. If right. I see a, if I see the, the other, the, I mean, you, you live in New York, you use these, these videos all the time. Like I saw this video the night of a cop that was physically beating a homeless person. They were trying to clear this, this, uh, this, uh, little area. And this person experiencing homelessness, I mean, literally was just pounding on him. Like that is a person that is upholding the law. Not so there were people filming it. Nobody was intervening. Nobody was interjecting. Um, I like to think that I would have done that point being like, One of the things I love about reality story is that somehow, somewhere in her gut, like she's 25, Pikachu blanket, you know, pets at home, a pink AR-15. Like this is not your, you know, Assange. This is not your Snowden. This is not who you think of when you think of whistleblower. This is a young girl that said this is the right thing to do. She did it um, and spent years in prison for it. Um, Right. Absolutely insane, Right. Like that this that this yeah. would happen to somebody like her of anybody. No, it is. I mean, there's just I do it something that I think allowed me to make the peace with like to figure out the piece so that it operates in the way it operates, which is sort of like we try to be as present, like this was the first word said, this was, cause I always felt that was the strongest thing. Although my heart lies with every single thing you said. Although I, there was this thing always, cause I, it's just, I have a weird, like internal, like good girl thing where I was, I, when I was first reading this, I had internally had the same, like, but she did break a law. Like I, you know, like I, I had sure. that. And like, but, I, but I always knew I was more like with her, but I think that tension even allowed me to make this and work on it with Emily and those actors who we made it with, because we all just had to interrogate that and then learn more how F the espionage act of 1917. It's like, we had to then delve into like stuff that none of us had really thought about. You know, we've all become a lot more activist-y minded. All, I mean, all of us, and then I think actually all of my collaborators in the last four or five years, but none of us were like hardcore activists. We were like hustling artists with like, you know, progressive, all of us, pretty progressive politics and feelings. Sure. But yeah, I, but so that element, it's funny because it was always an interesting thing to me because I would have to squelch that down a little bit or like, like I said, sort of let it sit there and be like, well, why? Because I do think it complicates it it does provide some of the tension because you know what I mean? Cause even her mom will say she, she did break a lot and like, it doesn't make it right. So, but, but that is the structure we're up against. And we actually have to accept that as like a huge part of the story. And then the horrible problem that's happened since. So it's just, it's a, it's really fascinating and it, yeah. Right. No, totally. And, and I'm not advocating for, um, I think we should by and large, most laws, are there to protect us? You know, Speed I'm not limits, seatbelts. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I, I think we by and large need to. I just think we need to be wise about it. And there will be times. I always tell people totally. this. I've I've already had times like this in my life, where 
just because it's law doesn't mean that I'm going to do it or vice versa. Like I'm not, I'm not going to do that because it's not the right thing to do. It's not the right, it's not the right way to live. If there are consequences later on, fine. What I, I do love, what I love about, is this a room? Let's, let's talk about the actual play for a minute. And I don't want to give away too much because if anybody's listening, um, that still needs to see the show or wants to see the show, I want them to see it and not know too much, but this is, this isn't giving away much because this is already talked about. You took the, the entire exact transcript, 63 minutes, Mm -hmm. and that's it. There is no additional commentary. There is two sentences at the end that wraps it up like a voice comes over the speaker and kind of wraps it up, talks about how reality is or, you know, was in prison is still, still technically in prison, but that's it. So you're letting, you're letting the, the audience sit in the reality of she did break a law. And here's what happened. And I just love so much that I'd love to hear your thoughts about this because you're a artist that you you create art, you write, you direct these things. And you had to take something that was technically already written for you and not written very well, right? And so it's four four humans that never knew that this was, I mean, they obviously knew it was being recorded. It's the FBI, but this was not going to be a play. There's all the ums and the ahs, and it's completely and utterly awkward at some points. And again, it's a 25-year-old girl just going about her day. All of a sudden, the FBI knocks at your door. I am a fairly well-spoken, very confident person, and I would be like, wait, what the hell's going on? I'm sure there would be stuttering going on in my speech as well. So what was that like for you, kind of making something that, again, was pre-written for you? Right. But you still had to find four people. And I'm so glad that Emily Davis was your choice for reality yeah. winner because Emily, I was in awe of yes. what she was able to do. I mean, it literally, I've never met reality. I hope that happens at some point. Right. But what I I've been studying reality for years. And I mean, it was it was like a it was everything I imagined reality would be. So what was that process look like? What did that process look like making a show pre-written for you, finding right. these characters that could embody all the the, the normalcy and awkwardness of four humans having an interaction that none of them anticipated they would have before that day. Um, yeah, so it was, it is, it's every word in order of that actual transcript. Very early on, I thought, I never wanted to change any meanings of it. Early on, I thought we might have to cut some of it because the nature of an interrogation is so cyclical. Like even after this big reveal moment, which I won't say, I mean, everyone knows it, but it is, yeah, the, they, there's a, you know, we ended up dividing it into acts. So again, there's so much more I could say to answer your question, but the last third of the play, a big thing has been revealed. They still keep questioning her. So we, but ultimately once I got those actors and I'll return back to that in a second, we, the job just became very old fashioned theater making. Like, I mean, Emily Davis is the one who said it. We treated it like a canonical script, like it was Shakespeare. Like we got to figure this out. And so it was just, reading through it and making it. But yeah, so Emily was, you know, a reason I made it because she could be reality. And then for the other act, like the the process, I, you know, yeah, this is like a bigger question and almost one hard to articulate because it's such the magic of casting and who you want to be in a room with. But to answer your question of how we made this word for word transcript, a play and the kind of actors that could do it in the process, it was really just being very straightforward. And, you know, with, Pete Simpson, who plays Agent Garrick, and that is actually a virtuosic 
performance that's happening. It's almost so subtly virtuosic as thank God the New Yorker called out because like Pete's doing something very major. And then Becca Blackwell, who's a longtime collaborator and very special, they're playing Unknown Male, the red, they're the redheaded actor in it. They all have downtown roots. They've all done other stuff, but when you're a downtown actor and there's, that's a semantic term we can, but you, it's a very like straightforward proposition in terms of you're, you don't think you have to push anything until, unless you're directed to, you think, okay, here's some language. Let's just start saying it without trying to act it. So that was really helpful. We now are joined by Will Cobbs up there. He didn't originate it. The original actor got an amazing TV job <laughs> during the pandemic. Sure. Couldn't be here with us. T.L. Thompson, they were incredible. They originated everything that Will Down does. But Will is a Yale-trained actor, but that was a really delicate thing of the casting of this fourth person who could come in and work the way we worked, which is all that physicality is highly directed. Like every step they're taking is like, and the, the, my direction is like, uh, well, you're an inch too close to reality there. Can you like, so they had to be someone who would deal with that. But again, back to like cracking the dialogue and the script and the feeling of it. It was just really a straightforward, like, I'm going to say this. They all started putting naturalism on it, which not nor is not normally how I'd my past plays had been, but that seemed really, really smart and right. And then to figure out all those stutters, all that is notated in the transcript. And Pete Simpson in particular is doing every stutter that is on the page. So, so this to answer, like, and Emily and Becca and Will, all of them, they're finding their character from what is on the page. I mean, it's really old fashioned theater making actually, which, you know, to go from downtown to just the history of the form, they are just finding character within those sentences, within how those sentences go off each other. I mean, a lot of time of us spent in the early days of creating this, you know, we don't do sit at, we're not a company that sits at a table and does it beat by beat. They are on their feet, but, you know, just, taking all the clues from what is on that page. I mean, we did very little other outside research into this story too much. And definitely we never like looked up FBI protocols. We just were like, and that document, while awkward and sort of, you know, potentially seemingly off-putting to many as a, as a theatrical script, so, felt so inherently rich to me and to all of us. We, you know, it was hard, but it was like, it gave us everything we needed if we stuck to it. And to the idea that dramaturgically, the main driving factor of the piece was that what does it feel like for reality moment to moment and then we sort of abstractly you know and at times literally create that on the stage but it's, that's how we sort of that was the modes of of making this a play in in general sense no i mean it's absolutely stunning i i went to a showing i went to a wednesday 2 p.m showing and it was absolutely packed <laughs> that's that's I mean that's amazing that's truly amazing on a Wednesday afternoon 2 p.m. It's not the Lion King right like people weren't right. coming <laughs> they weren't coming for the theatrics they right. weren't coming for the music like there's no you know right. Jessica Vosk is not Sarah Bareilles not like none of that they were right. coming to sit for 63 minutes and listen to this awkward amazing uh, performance that. When it when it concluded, I mean, it was immediate people on their feet clapping. Like it was just immediate. Like I could finally breathe. Right after I just right, sat right there, I just sat there for for sixty plus minutes. Just couldn't really breathe because I didn't want to miss one bit of the. I had to figure out the new like all the nuances right. happening here because it's right. not 
like you said, there was no improv, right? It was exact yeah. down to the yeah. grunts and the sniffles and the, the stutters. <laughs> and so we had to we had to really like try to pick up on everything. I mean, just job job super well done. Thank um, you. I, I really, really loved it. I, I, I do. You've been so gracious with your time. Yeah. I want to I want to sort of wrap up with two. Well, one is I hope hope you can sure. answer this sort of succinctly. Sure. If, you, if you can't just tell me that one's not okay. good. That's that's a, that's a big idea. So we can't talk about that now. Here it is, because this is a, a podcast that is helping people think more meaningfully, more deeply about living a meaningful life. Right. There's so much crazy shit going on in the world. Right. There's there are homeless people to feed. There are, you know, a climate crisis that we're dealing with right now. There's all these big things going on. Why should we take the time mm -hmm. to make good art? Why is that important right. now in a world where we could, I mean, it's it's a little exaggerated, we're exaggerating a little bit, but like it feels like it's burning down sometimes, right? Yeah. We have yeah. millions of people oh, refusing to take a really vaccine. burning down. <laughs> it feels like, yeah, exactly. There are parts that are literally burning down. So why make art? Yes, I mean, I, I'll, you know, I, I, I think I still am like, oh, but I, I do have some thoughts on this. And the first clearest thing I can think is I really worked through this was after the 2016 election when like so many people got like really activated and were like, what, what, what? We have to, we have to care more. We have to pay attention. We have to get involved. And there was real like explicit and implicit feelings and questions of like, is it totally dumb to be an artist? Do I take this kind of energy and become an activist or get a job that's more actionable to help all the things that you just listed out, Nick? And I remember like walking around Bushwick where I lived then and like really thinking about this on the sidewalk. And I was like, Ugh. I mean, and I did, I turned, I've turned more to activism and other things like in that time since and stuff. But in terms of like what I could do and what I knew how to do, I was like, remember having this thought and I was like, I think I need to keep doing and making work. I think that is what I can do. And I'm not, you know, to be, not that my work is more special or better, but for years I have used, like I've told queer stories, I've told female stories. I've tried to change the molecules of what theater spaces can be like. I'm not saying that in any high way, but I'm like, I still think that is actually something we need to see not necessarily if I make them or not, but I'm going to keep trying to make them. So I'll do it like stories that change who is seen, whose stories are told, who is centered. And I'm and that's just how I've always made work. I'm not even going to like make that a new mandate. I'm just going to try to make the work that comes up to make not even knowing yet I would come to reality winner. And so, you know, jumping now with like the wild years and times since and where we are with so much intense stuff that affects humans so crazily, like to why make art and make stories? I mean, I, I, I just still, it models for us possibility. Like it, it, it does. And, and there's, and it is necessary. And I think it's vital and we need the super smart scientists clearly now making vaccines and helping people. And we need like, we need a million more mutual aid societies and we need doctors like that stuff. We probably still need more, but around all that, we have to have the sense of like heartbeat and humanness that I totally a thousand percent believe art offers and models for us. And that we need to sit in spaces, seeing live things 
happen and have stories and we and and also I'm super into TV film and books like but we we need those engagements to crack out of the other stuff to I believe help us do that stuff and there's more to say and interrogate on that answer because I but but yeah that's my thing no that's really beautiful spot on you are you're not creating I don't see you creating activism art you're just creating art and it's telling story it's telling human stories this is that you're telling i mean you i I will link we didn't get a chance to really expound on a lot of the stuff you're doing because of where i wanted the conversation to go but i will link to a lot of your other work and as i was exploring i was really damn impressed with the other things that you have created and when i think of you know i mean even our current our our former president the the a lot of the people and institutions that he attacked were artists we're artists. Right. When tyrants and megalomaniacs come into power, we can see this throughout history. They get rid of the artists first yeah. because art inspires revolt. Art inspires revolutions. Art inspires people to get to work. And so all the scientists, all the doctors, all of the people, all the smart people that you mentioned that <laughs> they need art to feed them. We all, the 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 people staying at home, taking care of their kids, the people working as lawyers, the, the Stephen Donzigers of the world that are lawyers, like he needs art to feed his soul so that he can withstand 800 days of, you know, of being in house arrest for doing the right thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, I loved your answer. It's spot on. We need the artist's the art makers to continue to make that art so that it can feed all of us. We need our souls and our spirits and our minds and our bodies nurtured and fed so that those that have committed to like full-time activism or creating vaccines or whatever have the fuel we need to do that. Is this a room? Broadway.com. Uh, friends listening, if you are in or around New York or if you want to make a last-minute Thanksgiving trip or whatever, uh, this is an incredible show. You'll want to see it. Um, last, Real quick last question. Is there a yeah. chance? They've already extended it. Yes. Is there a chance that could happen again if demand rises or is this it? Is November 27? No, I don't know. Yeah, no idea. I mean, I have no idea. I, I think at this point I have a – I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I think it probably closes on the, we close the 27th and each on the 28th probably will happen, but it's been a wild ride so far. So who knows? I mean, it, I, and I'm really, I'm removed from all that. I'm just right. a hog in their wheels. At yeah. this point. And I love those producers, but it's a wild time to be doing theater. And I think, I think it's a bit of a day by day proposition, even separate from financial, but with COVID and all of it. So yeah. I mean, I hope it gets revived in some way. I hope yeah. reality gets to see it in some fashion at some yes. point. I think it will. I think yes. she, reality will feel very honored by what you've done. But for, again, for those listening, please try to make it happen. Is this roombroadway.com uh, before it closes on the 27th? Uh, Tina, you're amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation, for making uh, this work of art and for the other works of art that you're making. Keep doing that. Um, and we'll continue to enjoy your work and be inspired by it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. So I was thrilled to get to do this with you. Dear friends, that's it for today. Thank you so much for spending time with us this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. A sincere thanks to each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm grateful for you. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now. <laughs>